Luke 15 is a story about the prodigal son. Well, it's not really, but I'll get into that. And it's a story about a father and his two sons. And it's a very real story for me. It's a very personal story for me. I've preached this before, the father's embrace. And it's very, very real because it's not, it's not theory for me. I've been both sons. I've been the rebel and I've been the, the religious performer. I've been both. And, you know, sometimes it's one person, another person. Sometimes it's a person in different phases of their life. And it's an extremely important story. Before we get to that, we have to understand that Jesus came to reveal the Father. Uh, he really did. That's, I mean, he, many reasons he came. He came to take away sin. He, came, he, he went through about seven or eight things that he said, this is why I've come. But predominantly, he came to reveal the Father. And he constantly spoke about, this is what my Father is like. This is what my kingdom's like. Because you see, in the outset of the last covenant, which was with Moses, the covenant that the people were under at the time he was on the earth, when the Father, when God came to them to speak to them, they were afraid. They said, no, we're afraid. You speak to Moses, and Moses will speak to us. And the mediation of man, that system of law and man, got set in place. And so Jesus has come to reveal what his father's like. Let me just say, if they knew what he was like, he wouldn't have had to come reveal him. These are God's people on the earth, and they have no concept of the Father of God, the Father. They have no concept of it. They only knew God through another lens, through the law, through righteous, religious, through punishment, through fear. They had no concept of God as a Father, and that's predominantly the revelation of the New Testament, that God is a Father. And so Jesus comes to do this. Why? Because he's about to make a way to give access to individuals. He's about to make a way to give people access to their father. And he has to remove the way they see him now. So he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And I read something out of Baylor University where 91% of Christians in America right now have no concept of God that looks like Jesus. 91% of Christians have no view of the father that looks anything like Jesus. <laughs> so he came to reveal the father. Because he's just about to make a way back to him. And so he's constantly speaking, this is what my father's like. Or this is what the kingdom of God is like. Because I didn't understand either. Either. So it's very important that he spent so much time, in a sense, revealing that. It's like in our language, Jesus saying, my dad's not who you think. That's really what it is. So let's go to Luke 15. We're going to look at some cultural things this morning. And we're going to go deep into culture. Is that good? We all say yes. Because there are some parts in Scripture, I find this parable, or these three, but this story of the lost sons. Some scholars say it's the most well-known literature of all literature. The story. It's the most well-known story. Because even if you don't go to church, you know of the story of the prodigal son. Now, it may not be true, but that's what scholars will tell you. And yet it has a context, and many people don't understand the context. It has extreme cultural significance that if we just read it in the West, we have no concept of what is actually going on. So, what's the context? 15 verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, being Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners. And eats with them. So he spoke the parable to them. And he spoke through parables. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. So why did he speak the parable? Because they were complaining that Jesus was sitting at a table with sinners and tax collectors. He's trying to reveal that his father is different to how they think. 
See, to sit at a table, to fellowship with someone at a table, was actually a cultural way to say, I have full acceptance of who you are right now. And that might challenge some of your theology. But Jesus is sitting there with tax collectors and sinners. He didn't become like them, but he accepted them as they were. And in the Jewish culture, before the Holy Spirit came to the earth, we have to understand they had no empowerment to not become like anything that they were surrounded with. That's why God said, do not live with, do not go near the world, don't do anything. Because the Holy Spirit was not indwelling them, did not empower them to be in the world, but let it have no effect of you. Yeah? Now he's saying, things are about to change. I'm about to send the promise of my Father, Holy Spirit. So now I'm sitting with these people. I'm not like them, but I love them. And they had a big problem with that. They had a big problem with that. <laughs> I wrote it like this. Jesus is reshaping orphans. They weren't orphans. They were the children of God. But he's reshaping people, the children of God, who were orphans, who think like slaves, to form sons who think like kings. That's what he was doing. A large part of his walk on the earth, that's what he's doing. He's changing an orphan mindset to a son mindset. That's the truth. <laughs> And he's still trying to do that today in many churches, in many religious circles all over the world. You have the children of God who still think like orphans with the mindset of a slave. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of Jewish men. We have to understand. I wish we could take the time, but these are Jewish men. And they were saturated in their traditions and in their culture, saturated. And this is actually who he's addressing. So, let's read the parable of the coin. We're still on intro and context. Help us, Jesus. He says, Oh, what woman, verse 8, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light the lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner, who repents. What's the point? What's he saying? Well, in this kingdom, our identity and our value are tied together. Why? Because ten silver coins, a lot of people may not know, but it was the headdress of a married woman. I think there's some pictures that will come up behind. You see that? Ten silver coins, ten drachmas. <laughs> they used to wear them, and she lost one. So it was important. It had to do with her value. Because in that culture, that gave her value, gave her belonging. So again, if we don't know the culture, sometimes we don't actually know what he's saying. Jesus is announcing, I've come to get a bride. That's what he's telling them. I've come to get a bride who is complete, who is whole. And I've come to give her value that she does not see right now. Very important. Because my people's identity have become lost amongst common surroundings. That's why she had to move everything. They've become lost around a world that is not even really their home. You know, I'm speaking about the church right now, all over the world. You see, the value of the coin, it's very important, did not change when it was lost. Who's Jesus sitting with? Lost people. He's just telling them that they're valuable. Think about it, friends. The value of the coin did not change when it was not yet found. It changes the way we see people who are not saved, I hope. I hope it shatters some theology where we think we're more important than them just because we've been found. No. The value doesn't change. But a coin that's not found has no use to its owner. It's still valuable, but you can't use it. 
true. So, <laughs> when a coin is in the, in the hand of the owner, even though it's speaking about a bride, all of a sudden now you can use that coin. And so, if your value is set, if your value with the Father is set, it's actually about learning to be available more than trying to be valuable. And many people are trying really hard to become valuable. But your value hasn't changed even when you got saved. But you became useful in the kingdom. Not useful as a tool, but useful as a family member, as a son. However, <laughs> a believer who avails himself, God, use me, God, I'm a, who avails himself to God, who understands that, and yet then ties their value to what he does do or doesn't do through them, has suddenly made themselves unavailable to God. Why? Because a good father will not reinforce an orphan mindset. If we tie our value to what God does through us, or does not do through us, we are actually becoming unavailable, even though our language might not be that. I heard someone say it this week, it's like a screaming child. When a child is screaming, you don't give him an ice cream. If you do, you, you shouldn't. When a child is screaming, you don't give him an ice cream. Why? Because you're training that child to get my attention, do this. You're training that child to have a mindset. There's certain things you have to do to get my affection, my attention, or to get what you want, act like this. And then we wonder why he screams the next time. You know, Christians are like that with their father. Things that we have to do to get his attention, to get his affection with God. I wonder how many prayers we pray that actually God cannot answer because of a mindset that he would reinforce if he did. <laughs> it's true. I've had this challenge in my life for a long time. I know, because I was both sons. <laughs> There's still sometimes part of the second son that wants to keep coming back. Perform. You know, it's a natural setting in the West. Performance. Yeah? It's the Old Testament system. A father will not reinforce orphan behavior. He will not approve a slave mindset. He will answer a son. He will answer a son. He will answer a son. Sometimes my sons, they just freak me out with how just incredible they are. They just, you know, the other day I missed it completely. I'm doing something and my son's dad, can I help you? I said, son, you know, and I was doing something with woodwork and it was difficult and, and he's four and I said, son, I, not right now, I'm a little, you know, I need to get this done. He said, okay, Dad, can I just follow you around? And I was like, oh, I missed it. <laughs> so I said, son, Daddy doesn't have to do this anymore. What do you want to do? You see, how we see our Father, man, big deal. Big deal. The loving Father and his two sons. That gives a different context to the story, I hope. Because Jesus is sitting with sinners. Remember the crowd is Jewish men. And he gives three parables. The last coin. Speaking about value. Okay. Let's read. Luke 15, 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. So we in the church, we say, this is the story of the prodigal son. Jesus never called it that. He said it was the story of two, a man with two sons. And they're both just as lost. 
just in different ways. The second son we're going to cover next week, but I believe the second son is far more prevalent to this culture. Far more. But he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeying to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. When he spent all there was a severe famine in the land. To actually show you the power of understanding culture, you know, they gave this, and I forget where I read this. I can go find it if you're interested. Um, they gave this story as an example of our background determining how we understand Scripture. I think to a hundred Westerners and a hundred people from the Middle East. It was the Barnard Research Group. You know Barnard? Who knows Barnard Research? And they asked him, read it once and then retell us what happened. You know that like 70 to 90 percent, I can't remember, of the Westerners never remembered the famine because it doesn't mean anything to them. But the people from the East who've lived in deserts they understand famine. And like 90% of them didn't forget it. It's not about the famine. I'm not speaking about that. It shows how our culture determines sometimes how we understand this. So he says, Not many days, verse 13, after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land. Why? Because they're not tied to the father of eternal resource anymore. It's the Gentile area. And he says, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. So that's, I love sometimes the Bible has this one little sentence, and we don't see all the people starving to death. It it was extreme. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Let's deal with the request. We have to, again, understand that we're looking at a community, and I know we're going to get into culture, and it's important, but I don't think we can understand. This is a shame and honor society. You see it sometimes in movies. Who of you have ever traveled to the Middle East or some countries that still operate? Can you lift your hands really high? Still operate on a shame and honor society. Yeah. It's a big deal, right? It's a big deal. Shame and honor. The whole society is built on those two things. So he's speaking about this. Kenneth Bailey incredible author, he's known as like the authority on cultural studies, he says this, to my knowledge in all of Middle Eastern literature aside from this parable, from ancient times to present there is no case of any son, older or younger, asking for his inheritance from a father who was still in good health because it was culturally shameful to do so extremely shameful you would never do it, he's speaking to Jewish men they would have been disgusted at this. Really disgusted. How can he do that? Plus he's the younger son. How dare he? Not even the older son. Big deal in this culture. You know, it just would have never happened. He's wishing his father dead, really. That's how they would have seen it. And he was not requesting money. We have to understand. He's requesting land and livestock. And they would have grown up with the story of King Ahab when he came to Naboth in 1 Kings 21. And he comes to Naboth because his vineyard's next door to the palace. And he says, I want to buy this vineyard because it's right here. And Naboth says, no, because according to Jewish law, even a king had to request land. And he says, no. And he says, how dare I give the inheritance of my fathers to you, even though he was offering to pay him so much money. They grew up with that story. 
you even say no to a king when he asks for land. It's that big of a deal. And so your younger son says, it's, to us it's one sentence, but we, we don't understand. He says, I want my inheritance, which is land and livestock. And then it says a few days later he left, so he made a quick sale. How many of you have ever to sell something quick when you're moving? You know you don't get what you want for it. Probably sold it cheap. And not only did it bring shame on the family, it brought extreme grief. Why? Because now, whether it was a third or 50%, we don't know this because he was younger, so it doesn't really matter. But the point is that now the income of the entire family has changed because that land and livestock is gone. They all became less wealthy. Changed their salaries. Changed everything. Because this young son says, I want, I want. Someone used to say, gimme, gimme, my name's Jimmy. That's really what happened. So, what's the response? Again, for us it's one sentence, but we have no context of what, how powerful this would have been for the men that were listening. It just says, he divided to them his livelihood. Whoa. Jewish men would have said, no way. There's no way that happened. They would have brought in other men to bring cultural pressure. Come and tell this son, come and tell this boy how to behave and what's right and what's wrong. He cannot do this, you know, because it brought extreme shame on the father specifically. Extreme shame. He would have been ridiculed in the market. And Jesus is trying to shift their perception of what his father is like. We have to remember, he's trying to reveal, my kingdom is not like your earth. My kingdom is not like the kingdom you think. My father, my dad, it's not like you think. Earthly fathers often miss a child's heart if they are more concerned how their child's behavior impacts their reputation. Fathering is more concerned with the formation of the child's heart, regardless of how that reflects upon them as parents. You see, that's our God fathers. And in this culture, that was not how they were fathering at all. But now hear me, parents whose children have run from the Lord, who are right now running so hard from the Lord that they're good at it, who are, you know, they hate God, they hate the family, whatever. Please hear what I'm about to say. Their lifestyle is not a reflection on your parenting. Because we all make mistakes. We are not his father. We are not, the, we are not perfect. But God is perfect. He is a perfect father. And look at how his children behave. Hello? Yeah? Look at how his children behave. Start from his parenting. You know? Mothers, hear me. It's not you. <laughs> it's just a nature. I know with abuse, and I'm not talking about those terrible situations. Yes, I understand we are responsible for our children. But there comes a point where it's not you. Because look at, look at how his children behave. I had a good father. I have a good father. He had, I was a scoundrel. I really, I was a serious scoundrel. Please hear me. It's important to understand. Yet God doesn't feel the need to run around to defend his honor. He's a good father. He's a good father. 
What's the result? Well, we know the result. He wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Now, prodigal, we think, means this sexual immorality, crazy. Uh, some translations even use the word debased. I like the King James. It says he wasted with riotous living. So dramatic. I love it. It means with reckless extravagance or riotous or wasteful. So the son squanders his inheritance. Because rebellion? Because the first son's is it, uh, my dad used to speak about harsh religious cultures we'll just put it that way and they're all over the world will produce a robot or a rebel will produce one of those two the second son was the robot he was the religious you know but rebellion always wastes what someone else worked for always that's what it does so he wastes his inheritance and in the modern age we always say prodigal like he's doing all these horrible things but actually prodigal means wasteful it means Extravagance. It means not understanding how to use money. So the debased lifestyle that comes as a result of that is actually because they don't know the value of what he was given. Please hear me. The debased lifestyle that this young man lived came because he didn't understand the value of what he was given. Christians, <laughs> the lifestyle that we see some believers live is because they don't understand the value of what they've been given it's a value issue are you guys alive yes. wonderful we know what happened he joined it he glued himself the word actually means glued he glued himself to a person of, why because he has nothing left you know suckers I mean that in the nicest way he's got nothing so he just finds it, it just sucks on this guy I'm gonna glue myself now in the Middle East the best way to get rid of a person a, the most polite way in that culture was to give them a job that they would never do. It's like companies. I don't want to fire you, so I'm just going to give you the worst thing to do in the world until you leave. Okay, that actually comes from the Middle East. And so he gives a Jewish man or Jewish young man to go feed pigs, thinking he'll never do it. He does. Shocks the guy, but it doesn't last long, so it worked. Because if you want a stray cat to stop coming around, just stop feeding it. And it'll stop coming around. So that's what's happening here. So he does that. Then we see the return. It says he came to himself. Let's read verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of the father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. Perish. So he was literally starving to death. It was severe. Okay. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's the shaming issue. Okay. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What's the point? He still doesn't understand his father. He still doesn't get it. And he's not repentant here, friends. Please hear me. You go read this in the Greek. He was scheming. I'm in a bad situation. Hmm, yeah, what do I do? Hmm. I know, I've, I've done it. I've done it. When I was in bad situations, if I speak the right religious language to my parents, I'll probably get what I want. Because they really want me to come to the Lord. Oh, that's honest. Happens all the time in the church. <laughs> People are looking at me like, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> that's what happens. And so we, we sound, you know, there's a scheme. I'm, mm, let me work this. I can work it. You know? That's what's going on here. And he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He came to himself, it says. However, he knows he was coming home to a ceremony called Kesesa. This is where a lot of people don't know. 
or kasasa, I don't know how they say it, it means cutting off. It was a ceremony that would, to evoke kasasa ceremony, you had to either join yourself or be hired or, you know, join yourself to a Gentile citizen or give away a portion of your inheritance. He had done both. So he's coming home to Kasaza, and what they would do is that he would approach the city gates, and the men that would be standing on the city gates would see him coming, know the story, know the reputation. It's gone around. Your business, you know, as a family, everyone knows your business. You know? Yeah? People are like, I want family, until that happens. Everyone knows your business, and these men would stand there and throw these clay pots, and they would smash, you know, way down, they would smash on the floor. Who's ever broken ceramic? Can you put it back together? No. Representing what? The way this thing is broken is the way the fellowship is broken between you and us. And he was cut off from community, from his faith, from his family. Cut off. And the only person who was not allowed to be at the ceremony was the father. He was not allowed to be there. The mother and the siblings could go and beg the community not to evoke the ceremony because once it was enacted, it was final. So he knows he's going home to Kasaza going home to that. This is what's happening, friends. Now the Jewish men listening, they're getting excited because they're, this boy must be taught a lesson. We think like that. He's going to learn now and we, we feel righteous about it. Jesus is revealing my father is not who you think. Verse 20 And he arose and came to his father it's funny. First he came to himself. Then he came to his father. It's an interesting way of wording things. Because when you see who you really are, you know who really loves you. When he arose and came to his father, sorry. Friends, I remember when I came home to my father. I have a good father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It's interesting, he didn't say what he rehearsed. He left out the servant part. Why? Because of Christ. He suddenly knew by the father's reaction that was not required. See, friends, we have to understand in the Old Testament, these Jewish men would have heard this and they honestly would have gone nuts. They would have said, no ways, never. That's wrong, never. How dare he? But in the New Testament, it says the kindness of God leads to repentance. It says, but the father said to the servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, bring it here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this son, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. You know when you rehearse something, that's what he did. And it, it just wasn't necessary. What's Jesus doing with these Jewish men, with these Jewish scribes and Pharisees, the religious people who are supposed to know God, supposed to reveal the Father? They're mad at this point, mad, because it's revealing their heart. What did the Father do? He says, he sees the Son straight away, 
and he sees his son a great way off. So the first thing we see it does, it says his father saw him. The father was the one person who should not have been there. You know, he shouldn't have been there. It means the father was going to the city gates every day, faithfully, saying, maybe, maybe today my son will come. Maybe today. Oh, today, Lord, let my son come today. Not today, maybe tomorrow. You know, every day. You know, God looks for you, friends. He really does. He looks for you. He looks for the areas of your life that some of you maybe say, well, I'm saved, but it's areas of your life. He looks, he waits, he longs. Then it says his father ran. Now, we may not understand this, but to run in that culture, a Jewish man over 40 was not supposed to run. Seriously, that was, it brought extreme shame. Extreme shame. For a Jewish man to run was what was one of the shameful acts. You never do it. A Jewish man over 40 was never to expose his bare legs. They wore long robes. That was another act that shamed him. And if on rare occasions in war and stuff this had to happen, they would take time to gird, their, you know, gird up your loins, to wrap it all in a sense under their legs so they could run. But when it was done in an instant manner, and I'm sorry to get graphic, they would just pick up their coats and run. So everyone behind them, what do you think they would see? Think about it. As they would run, the thing would lift. It's an interesting view. So <laughs> that's what happened. All the men standing at the city gates. But he sees his son a far way off and he says, I know that gate, I know that walk. That's my son. He runs towards his son. We have to understand what this father was dealing with. He was shamed at their request. Brought shame on, just a request brought shame on his family. He was shamed at the sale of the land. He was shamed at the departure of his son. Now he's shamed again. And he runs to his son. What's he doing? He's taking the shame that his son deserves. He's putting himself in between the ceremony he wants to get to his son, the one person who shouldn't be there, the father. He wants to get to his son before the community gets to his son. See, these men would have understood this, Jewish men. This is the love of a father. And he puts himself in between. You see, I believe this. If I had to go to heaven, one, you know, like now, phew, wonderful, have some great experience. But if there was such a thing as a school of the Holy Spirit, I believe there is, but who knows what that is. So if there was a school, if I could go to school with the Holy Spirit, and he's taking you through all these different classes, it's just a personal thing. It doesn't really matter because it doesn't say it here. But I believe the final class would be how to reveal the Father. Wouldn't be healing. Wouldn't be preaching. Would be how do you reveal the Father? And not through teaching and preaching. Through life. How do you reveal the Father? Because Jesus came to reveal the Father. So when Hebrews says, we all know this to be, Hebrews says this. It says, Jesus endured the cross, despising it. Shame. Why? What is he doing? Saying, this is what my Father is like. Genesis 2.25, they were both naked and felt no shame. Jesus was naked on the cross. He endured the cross, despising its shame, putting himself in between the shame. Why? Because we all love Jesus. Oh, Jesus paid the price. Yes, of course. But what was he doing? 
He was showing, this is what my dad's like. This is the father. So, these men going nuts. Just imagine. No one's happy. Jesus is happy. No one else is happy. Okay, sinners are happy. The religious people are not happy. So he continues, which I, I love about Jesus. He's like, really? Let me give you some more then. I just love it. He says, he says, he fell on his neck and kissed him. It's the same word fell as in, the, in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came, it's the same word. He fell upon them. He descended. It, it's the same word. When the Father fell on his neck and kissed him, it's the same word. When he that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So the Bible says, when he the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will empower you. You will receive power to do what? To become? To become? Witnesses. Right? To become something. What was that? It's the kiss of the Father. It's the same word. That's why I keep telling people, it's the Holy Spirit, yes, power, yes, all that stuff. But it's actually the kiss of your Father. So receiving love from the Father, understanding how He sees you, is so important. It is the empowering factor. And people say, oh, you're focusing on yourself, or you focus, well, let's just talk about God. That's great. We can do that forever. Because he there's so much to Him. But not when it's out at a distance. We haven't understood the Father. I hope that makes sense to you. He fell on his neck and kissed him. He put the best robe on him. Again, not any robe, the best robe. And there's a whole long thing about that. The best robe. It was a festive robe of honor. It was the family robe. What's he doing? He's restoring his identity. Identity. Because there's the warrior's garments, priestly garments, worshiping garments, all through the Bible, the robe was an identity issue. We have a family garment. It's called a robe of righteousness. That's the family garment. That is our identity. Righteous based on the works of another. So he gives the son the best robe. And he restores his identity. Then it says this. He puts a ring on his hand. Now I believe it was a signet ring. It may not be. But he puts a ring on his finger. What is this, friends? He's giving his son authority. He's giving his son, today we would give him a credit card. He's giving him transactional authority. We're to go to the market. He has the robe. So people see how he comes from that family. But if he doesn't have the ring, the family is saying, that's our son. Yeah, we don't really trust him though. So you're not going to get the company credit card. He gave him both. He's just wasted everything. Huh. We don't think like that. He gave him a ring where he could go to the market said, yeah, you see which family I'm from, but I also have the ring. So he, whatever he wants, whatever you want. Put the ring in the wax seal, that merchant would take that parchment up to the slave, one of the slaves of the owner, and they would give him the money. Transactional authority. We've been given transactional authority by our father, but because we don't know our identity, we never use it. He got given the robe first. Because if we take our identity, our robe, if we think we were only going to get the robe based on how he uses us, we can't get the robe in a sense because he's... I understand we're righteous. I'm not saying that. Identity, friends, so important. And he got given authority. Authority. We have transactional authority. To deal with issues in people's lives in love, not in a you terrible, no, not that. To set people free 
to bring change to communities, to bring to shift things. Because we have a ring. He put sandals on his feet. That's purpose. You know, it's one thing to just love a person, but you know what they need? They need purpose in their life. They need purpose. Sandals, the gospel fit with the shoes of readiness, purpose. And the fatted calf, which I won't get into, there's a lot of that, but it's just, it's a huge celebration. Huge celebration. It went, went on for days. Huge celebration. So my question to you, there's a few coming. Is this the God you know? Is this the perspective you have of the Father, or does it offend you? And with love in my heart, I will say if it offends you, you're probably religious. Jesus came to reveal the Father to a religious people who had no concept of what he was like. Not what he's really like. To be restored, friends. It's interesting to me that the father would say to the first son, yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you, I know, I know you're going to waste it, you don't know what it's value, I'm going to give you that. But he never threw the second son a party. That's what the second son, you've never even thrown me, you've never given me a fatted calf, and, and we're going to get into that next week. Why? You know in the Passion Translation, it's, it translates that part out of the Aramaic. You know what it says? The, son, the second son says to the father, I've been slaving for you all these years. Well, he was right. See, the father could never do something for the second son because he would have reinforced a slave mindset. He says, if I give you something now, you're going to keep doing what you're doing to get something from me. Big deal. Which is more severe? I think the second issue. I think the second son. At least the first son knew he could ask. We're building a culture here of people who know God. So corporately, just real quick. And Dad, I'm going to ask you to come pray. Is that all right? He just carries a father's heart, father's anointing. Corporately, do we choose as a people, individuals, as a body, as a church, as families, do we choose to stand with those, think about this, who will cause us shame? You know, because really what the church is known for is to point the finger at the sinner. Look how bad they are. What does the father do? He says, I want that person next to me. Why? Because I will take the shame on their behalf. What's that? That's a person who understands who their father is. You see, Peter was the one who denied Christ. He didn't want his reputation and the fear for his life, so he denied Christ. We all know the story. But when he healed the man, when God had changed his heart and healed the man at Gate Beautiful, it led to some problems. They got arrested. But the man, that lame man who was healed, he was, he was lame from birth, it says he held on to Peter and John. Why? Peter had become like a father. And Peter, like a father would, he tucks this man behind him and says, you deal with me. You can arrest me if you want, but you leave him alone. That's the father. That's a father. Can I say a few statements? And then Dad, you can pray. Knowing our Father changes the way we do community. Genuinely. The community will be built upon a person's revelation of a Father. Please hear that. In the Western world, in Northern Virginia, upon the revelation of who our Father is. How about you? I'm speaking to individuals now. How about you? People say, oh boy, don't look at me. It's, not a, it's a good thing. 
Do you know your value to God? Or does it, do you think it wavers based on how you behave? Because Jesus has just told us the coin's value didn't change before it was found. Because if we think our value shifts, our life will change too. It goes up and down as our value goes up and down. It's absolutely true. Jesus is saying, hey, that's not my dad. That's not what my dad's like at all. It's just not. Is your value established, friends? These are good questions. People say, well, they know here. I know the scriptures. I understand the grace of God. I understand. I know here. You know how you'll know, really? You know how you'll know? You'll know about how you pray when you're alone. Is it God? I'm sorry, God. Help. I did it again, God. Huh. You know how you'll, you'll know about what you find easier to believe or accept of God. It's just a good question. Do you find it easier to believe in his punishment or in his love? What, what comes easier? You'll know about what you expect from life because Jesus said in this life you'll have trouble. But when that trouble comes, and it will come, is he the source of it or is, you, is he your strength in it? Good questions. I went through all of these questions. Wrestled them through. <laughs> if you're here this morning and you have run from God but for whatever reason, I'm going to be standing over here after we pray. If you're saying, I want to know that Father that you know. I want to know that God. If that's you, and you just, you've run, you just, you've run. You know, you're not in a place with the Lord. You can't perform your way back. You can only accept the way He sees you, your way back. Then I'd love to pray for you after the service. Friends, I hope that helps you. But yeah, bless you. I love you. Next week we're going to cover the second son.